Welcome to this new episode of the Culture and Inequality podcast. My name is Gieselinde Kuipers and I'm hosting this podcast. Today I'm talking about elite culture with Bruno Cousin and Sébastien Chauvin. Welcome very much to this podcast. So first, can you briefly introduce yourself, Bruno? So hello everybody and uh, thank you Giseline there for this uh, amazing opportunity for this invitation. So um, I'm Bruno, I'm Bruno Cousin. As you said, I'm a sociologist. I'm an assistant professor at Sciences Po in Paris. Uh, and as a sociologist, I'm particularly interested in cultural sociology, urban sociology, inequalities and forms of sociability. And almost all my research actually focuses on the upper on the upper class and upper middle classes. Uh, well, as you're going to see during, of course, uh, this conversation. Yes, thank you. Well, hello, Sébastien. Hi, thank you. And I'm Sébastien Chauvin. I'm an associate professor at the Institute of Social Science uh, at the University of Lausanne. And aside from studying elites and class inequality together with Bruno, I also do research on uh, gender, migration and labor. Yes, thank you. Today, we are talking about elite cultures. So the cultures of the elites... So the central question for today is how social elites function, so how they manage to maintain their status and how they do so also by keeping other people out, so how, how they remain exclusive and specifically what the role of culture is in this. And this is something that both of you have been studying extensively for quite some time also in very different places. So why is it important to study elite culture? One of the main reasons for which it's important is because we're sociologists of social capital, of forms of sociability, and uh, we try to understand uh, to study the forms of like of leisure, the forms of aggregation, the forms of uh, um, <clears throat> class groupness of uh, the upper class, we're going to see the bourgeoisie, the upper class, the super rich, and of course uh, these uh, dynamics also have, if you want, like a cultural dimension. There is basically like narrative, frames, uh, institutional way of thinking, uh, different meaning-making process that basically are part of this dynamic and, uh, and support them. Yes, indeed. So can you tell me something about your first experience with elite culture? So what was the first time you were close to the super-rich? Well, I mean, the first time in which I was close to the super-rich, I guess, comes from, you know, like, I'm, I'm, from, I'm myself from basically like an upper class, an upper middle class background, but I basically, I was like socialized as a, as a, as a kid in a school in which um, some actually of my, um, of the other kids going in that school, it was a private school and some of them were clearly, you know, members of the 1% of even less. I mean, I do remember as a kid, sometimes it was unusual, but sometimes some birthday party with basically like uh, with Ferraris parked in the garageway. So I guess that would probably be my first contact with the, the super rich. So this was in Paris? No, that was actually in Switzerland. I, 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 I'm, yeah, in Switzerland. Okay. So what about you, Sebastian? Your first experience with the 1%? Well, I, I would I would say it's probably when I moved to Paris. I I, use, I grew up in the countryside in the in Western France, and I was from a, a middle class family that was pretty uh, I would say well off compared to the village I, I uh, to a lot of my friends in the village in the, in which I grew up. And then I I moved to the next city for my high school, and then I I moved to uh, these preparatory classes for uh, competition exams of, uh, for. Um, uh, in Paris at the, at the end of the 1990s. And that's where I met uh, among my classmates, people uh, uh, who had a much higher uh, capacity to travel and have had, have had uh, global experiences of various uh, uh, cultures that was, that was based on uh, economic as, as much as uh, cultural privilege. So I'm not sure whether I could identify them as super rich. At least that was my first experience with some form of 1%. So the first question I always ask before we move to the readings, which today includes two readings by yourself of your own research among the rich or the super rich, and one article by Ashley Mears. But the question I always ask first is what surprised you most in the readings of this week? Well, obviously uh, we were, well, we were not surprised by the, our, our own papers, but if you're asking us, <laughs> 
if she asks us why we grew uh, more and more interested in the in the work of Ashley uh, uh, along the years, uh, it's really because I mean she's a fantastic colleague, of course, uh, but clearly the fact that we have many uh, common interests and even uh, in many ways we share uh, a same uh, empirical uh, uh, area. I mean the the social clubs we studied in uh, in Milan and still currently studying in, in Paris, and the nightclubs that she studied, uh, of course, uh, they're very different, but they are both institutions of sociability for economic elites. And the members of our clubs or their kids are not re not really the, the, the patrons uh, of, um, of Asia's club. Mm -hmm. So what surprised me most, actually, is the, the sort of gossip appeal of the texts. And I think it's interesting how hard it is to resist this sort of sense of magic or exclusivity even in a sociological text that I was I was drawn into this wow look at this sort of uh, experience and I think this is interesting because you know as a sociologist you hope yourself to be sort of blasé about this but sort of being intrigued still by you know these Caribbean islands and these trade social clubs and these nightclubs that Ashley Mears is studying and of course the other thing that that surprised me, which is something that I would like to talk to you about also, is that that in this world that seems so connected, where you would say, you know, we, can, we could, I mean, before COVID, we could all take the plane and go anywhere, that it's still possible to have these sort of really secluded networks that appear to be really very closed off to even sort of relatively elite people such as ourselves as professors. Um, so, Bruno, is there something that surprised you most, both in doing the research or in reading Ashley's work? That's what also was one of the things that surprised me when we basically started. That's what actually triggered us also to, to start to gather this, uh, um, this fieldwork, is the fact that like I ended up basically spending a holiday season there, and I basically realized that the island is 24 square kilometers, and at the same moment as me, on the island, you had half of the twin 20 richest people in the world, you know, from the Forbes list. And at that time, I was like already studying segregation in the city. And I thought that, you know, by basically studying the most self-segregated neighborhood and rich neighborhood in Paris, in Milan and New York, I had seen the highest level of, you know, of concentration and, and, and residential aggregation. And suddenly I realized that actually those holiday resorts where people go, uh, you know, um, to a fun or like, you know, to like, you know, the Sambars or the Hamptons are even more concentrated and even more segregated and in which the level at which people mingle with each other is even higher in a way than uh, in urban areas. Uh, yeah, I, I think what, one thing that fascinated me, perhaps given my trajectory, uh, which is kind of being upwardly mobile through uh, my studies, and it's a very naive discovery uh, studying uh, these forms of uh, elite uh, cultures and, uh, and elite groups, is that uh, we've been told from uh, childhood that, uh, you know, that you needed to be good at school, and that school was, uh, was the hierarchy uh, that, uh, that kind of was an, um, um, a metonymy for society. And um, and that uh, if you if you were the best at school and you'll be the best in society, and I, I have to say that discovering that this was a fairy tale, it was absolutely not how, how society functions, especially not global society. I was uh, I was very disillusioned and, and fascinated at the same time. And I, th I think that that was the big shock, uh, early naive shock in my study of elites. So. Uh, because first, I would like to ask you about the readings for today. So we have three articles, two articles by yourself, and then one article by Ashley Mears, and we have some additional readings. So can you say something about why you suggested these particular readings? Either of you. Yes, of course. <clears throat> I mean, so the, of course, the, the reason we suggested them is because, of course, they're they're pertinent to today's topic and also because in a way they're connected with each other. So if you find the, the piece on Sambars is a short comprehensive monograph on all social relations on the Caribbean island, which is one of the most exclusive seaside resorts worldwide. And in that piece, basically, we analyze the three groups interacting on the island today, historic islanders, metropolitan immigrants, and rich or super rich vacationers and villa owners. And uh, which, by the way, are the three groups are all uh, um, overwhelmingly white. And we show how they produce and maintain together a generic brand of exoticism, making it the local variation of a global space of distinctive upper-class leisure, within which the island has achieved a central position. The 2017 paper, 
the one about clubs, about the, the Milan Social Clubs, which is in fact the English version of an article we published in, in 2010, is is the first and only sociological analysis of you know the traditional social clubs of the of the former aristocracy and the high bourgeoisie uh, of the city of Milan. So here we want it's basically so Milan, which is of course the Italy's economic capital, is like an older uh, institution. Uh, upper class social clubs in the European metropolis have mostly been described through isolated monography. And what is the specificity of our work is that it allows us to present a more relational analysis. Because in Milan, the clubs form a relatively autonomous and coherent space of distinction. And uh, we have differences between clubs that concern you know, historical origin, social composition, organizational features, and modalities for membership. But they also pertain to the particular criteria used by each institution in organizing, mobilizing, describing, and legitimating the links connecting its members with each other, as well as in distinguishing itself from its competitors. Sebastian, I don't know if you want to yeah, add something fact, about that. In fact, it, it was by working in, uh, and thinking through the Milan case that we uh, initially developed our theoretical program on what we call the, the symbolic economy of social capital. Basically, in distinction, uh, Bourdieu famously studied dynamics of distinction between forms of cultural, cultural capital. Uh, but uh, his analysis of social capital had not attempted to compare the different forms that social capital can take and to see whether these uh, different uh, forms of connections can have unequal symbolic values. So that's what we try to do in that piece. We try to extend Bourdieu's relational framework uh, to the analysis of social capital itself. We, we, we try to extend distinction to social capital. In, and, uh, and finally, we included the article by um, Ashley on, on girls as elite social capital. So not just um, for its awesome fieldwork and, and the obvious connection uh, with our St. Bart's uh, study, but also because it, it makes very visible the, the role of uh, gendered and class exploitation at the very heart of the games of distinction between men of the economic elites in this uh, VIP circuit. So um, the article, uh, we also included it because through uh, its gendered lens, we think it reintroduces issues of uh, appropriation in the analysis of capital that many, in many ways had been overlooked uh, in the Bourdieu and capital theory. So um, we think it addresses an, another type of, of relationality that we, we think speaks uh, to what we want to say today. And Rizalinde, if, if, if I can just add something very quickly. So to say it also in a more simple way, a more empirical way, there is the fact that, that of course, the, the kind of club sociability in nightclub that Ashley studies also, as she actually says in her paper, do took place in Sambart, okay? So it's actually like Sambart is one of the fixture of that global party circuit that Ashley, that Ashley studies. So in a way, our Sambart monography basically explain what happened also on the rest of the island around also this global party circuit. And of course, the connection between Ashley work and the, the, our own on like uh, on social club is the fact that of course, in the, in, in in the nightclub papers, we basically see all the these dynamics of exploitation and reappropriation that are heavily gendered. Well, actually, of course, our field is in a way gendered in another way because those social clubs that we study are like gentleman club, you know, um, and therefore it's it's another form of like it's another institution managing social capital and managing social connections. And uh, of course, also what's interesting is that uh, they're the same people that often patronize both, you know, or, 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 the, or the three places. Yeah, no, I think, yes, actually what is clear that, that you seem to be working very much on the same sort of theoretical program. I think this is really what connects the articles. And of course, you also know each other, right? And you've both collaborated. And I think this shows, so also in the affinity for the specific method. So it's very deeply ethnographic uh, with lots of intensive, in-depth exploration of these very difficult to access uh, settings. I think one of the things is that the sociology discussion on cultural inequality very often is focused on the upper middle class, which is implicitly equated with the elite. And I think we think it's very important to focus uh, on uh, all the classes that are above. Uh, and uh, that uh, we're also there are also cultural processes to analyze, and uh, so that's why we are all, all uh, the three of us interested in let's say the the, the culture of economic of economic inequality at the top. 
And yes. I think what also what really connects all these papers and also the additional literature is really the notion that there is this culture is used also to, to connect these elites also globally, that they share a culture, that they share sort of practices and activities and leisures and styles and uh, and that this is very exclusive and also that these leisure styles and these cultural styles function to somehow uh, yeah, uh, exclude others in a very real way. So it's so these people, they, so they're connected by their social capital, they have the economic capital, but there's also clearly a cultural world that they inhabit and that sort of us regular people do not inhabit and cannot even enter. Um, so I want to discuss this step by step, each of the articles a little more in depth, starting with the St. Bart's uh, article. So this is based on your own research there. And I think as Bruno said, one of his cousins, now his siblings, right, was working there. Uh, so yes. Can you say something about how did you, so what happened when you went there? Did you go there explicitly wanting to study elite culture or was it just a byproduct of going on vacation or how did this happen? Well, actually it was like, uh, yeah, it was sort of, sort of vacation. I just had to pay like a plane ticket. I took the boat then to arrive there. And then I had, you know, absolutely no other expenses because I was basically sleeping on the couch of my, in the very small bungalow. And then when I was there, I was sort of like absolutely flab flabbergasted by the fact that uh, um, I, the access to the island gave me like an immediate access. I mean, I was sort of like meeting these people in the street of the island. I realized, as I told you, that like, uh, like half of the 20 richest men in the world were actually physically there. I was able to see many of them. And... Uh, and I basically realized that there was this incredible form of like sociability, proximity, accessibility, and that of course the, the obstacle was like uh, you know like uh, being able to go to the island. And of course, as you say, that I was um, I mean the, the three people that we study, of course, they have an exclusionary dimension. Of course, some part is difficult to get, and there is active uh, strategy to avoid uh, people that don't belong, uh, quote unquote, there. To be there. Uh, same thing, of course, with the door uh, of the clubs that don't let anybody in. And uh, same thing, of course, with the selection process in social clubs. So, of course, I was sort of like aware that there was this uh, exclusionary dimension, this groupness, this form of aggregation. And then from there, yeah, I, I, you know, and I, I, I actually, I, I came back uh, and like, I, I think I already knew Sebastian at the time, of course, and like, and I, I, I got him on the phone, like, a couple of days after I came out, I'm like, I'm almost like, man, it's, it's crazy. I, I need to study. We need to study that. Because, of course, what I did almost immediately as a good sociologist, a good sociologist students, I basically opened my computer after 12, 48, 48 hours on the island. And I say, OK, somebody had to be I've written something about that. And I started to look for monographs, you know, and uh, there was basically nothing. The last monograph uh, on uh, Sambart had been actually written in the 50s by, you know, some famous French anthropologist, by Michel Leris, actually, that was sent there by uh, Lévi-Strauss. And, uh, but it was like before the island became a touristic destination. And so he talked to me about this and we teamed up to go back, uh, to go back and, uh, and start uh, the, the study. I mean, we, we started writing and reading uh, about uh, about St. Bart's and then uh, and then we ended up doing uh, doing uh, field work there, and that's how I got to St. Bart's. One of the reasons we were interested in uh, sort of leisure sociability uh, in St. Bart's is it's a kind of type of sociability that is not based on uh, utilitarian ba uh, uh, grounds uh, in terms of uh, sharing the same economic sector or the same uh, profession. In many ways, why people are there is, is they're at the same level in their own domains in many ways, but their sociability, in a sense, is based on pure friendship or, in a sense, on pure class. In, in, in a sense, it's the same thing. And that's why this kind of informal sociability for us is important for class analysis, because in many ways, that's where we can see a sort of a natural experiment of pure class sociability. Yeah, yeah the, the, this is just like one of the reasons, I think it, it's, we have to find the right way to say, but like one, and it's exactly what Sebastian was saying, is like clearly one of the reasons for which it is useful and important to study leisure space, um, it is because there are places that build, if you want class consciousness or build groupness, if you want, 
more uh, easily and in a way that appears to be more authentic because people uh, participating them, if you want, as themselves, they're not there in their professional persona and their professional role. And therefore, it is uh, like easier to uh, sort of like frame uh, the ties that are built in this context as you know, uh, strong ties, as authentic, as non-utilitarian ties. It doesn't mean that that after the ties are not useful to make money, to make business uh, arrangement, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the fact that they the, the, that originally they appear to have been built on a more like affinitary um, and uh, non-interested way, it, it's it's part of what makes them strong. Yeah, well, this is, of course, something that comes up in this podcast also for other sort of less elite groups, that the cultural activities are where people feel they, you know, they can be themselves and they can build pure relations because it's disinterested, as Bourdieu would say. And it's, I think it's interesting, but it's the same logic that we see in sort of uh, more mundane uh, social circles that it also plays out that when people go on vacation and they go to the pool and they look for friends that you have the same sort of suggestion of disinterestness where you can build pure friendships. Yeah, what is what really fascinated me about the St. Bart's uh, paper, I must say, is the, the, the sort of diversity of the people that actually uh, come there. So, and I kept thinking at this famous picture that I remember that went that went all around the world of Obama visiting the I think the private island of Richard Branson. So yes, the, in the British in the British Virgin Islands. Yes, that was a British Virgin. And I think it's this. So also in Saint Bart's, what is striking is all these people that seem to come from very different worlds are together. So it's the it's very rich French haute bourgeoisie, and it's Bill Gates, and it's. Uh, P. Diddy, and it's so everybody, and Uma Thurman, so they also, and I didn't realize that apparently that that this, they, they mingle, right? Yeah, sure. I mean, obviously you have various corners of the field of power, uh, to use a Bordeauxian term, that are that end up uh, in, uh, in St. Bars, not, not all of them, of course, but you also have uh, um, uh, more and more corners of a globalizing uh, upper class that are also uh, incorporated uh, into uh, sociability uh, in Saint Barts, and uh, one of the specificities of Saint Barts is it, it's it's uh, touristic population, its vacationing population grew over the last decades, but it didn't grow uh, vertically by democratizing to the upper middle class or to the middle class. It actually grew laterally by expanding to uh, new industrialists or new uh, new economy. Um, uh, tycoons uh, from a number of other countries and, and global areas. Yeah, so one of the questions I had is also in terms of the elite, so who is not there? So there is clearly exclusion sort of uh, vertically. So the upper middle classes don't go there. But also, is there also other forms of, so who is not there? So are there people from Asia, for instance, or which which of the... Which of the elites, what sort of divisions do we see in these elite cultures and how do they work? Well, l l let's say that basically traditionally the two main, um, I mean, the main origin of the people patronizing Sambart were basically uh, elite family from the East Coast. Okay, so uh, Americans from the East Coast, a lot, New York, you know, basically a lot of people that have houses in Sambart and their friends are basically people that generally, you know, have, have their first residence in, in, uh, in, uh, in New York, second residence in the Hamptons, and the third one or a fourth one, whatever, in Sambart. There is that. And there is, so, and, and then more generally people from the East Coast and more generally also Americans. You have also Californian.com, etc. Of course, it's a little less practical for Californian because they have to fly, you know, from uh, more far away. Uh, then, of course, you have the French. And in addition of that, however, you have the fact that, 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 that uh, it, since the 80s, the, uh, the island has become more and more, if you want, like a global destination. And, and then you, you, you do have, you know, also like Russian oligarchs, South Americans, things like that. I do think, however, that if you really want to see who's not already, or at least who was not already arrived at the time in which we were basically making our... Um, uh, our research, yeah, of course, for example, Asian elites uh, were a little less represented. 
uh, you have also, and, and then you have also, of course, some like some uh, some post-colonial dynamics. For example, clearly, uh, like uh, the British upper class uh, patronize less some bars because they have other actually destination, generally uh, English overseas territory, in which they have you know they're they're more used to do. It doesn't mean that they never come to some bar. They often come to some bar, but clearly it's not one of their first uh, um, their first destination. Concerning like the um, uh, the mingling. Uh, well, of course, like, like it's an island, so there is like you know still thousands of people, and there is a, there, it doesn't mean that once you're on the island, you basically have can have like a total access to all the space of the island. You know, there is still some form, of course, of like barriers inside the island. Generally, you can go to all the nights, all the bar, all the restaurant, but still people then have, you know, their own houses or their own yacht on which they organize their own parties and have their own guests. And of course, if you're not, in, I mean, I don't know, I, I don't know what's the relation with, between PDD and Bill Gates. I, I assume if there is none, there is no reason for which PDD will invite Bill Gates on his boat or reciprocally, I, I, or maybe it happened. I don't exactly know. But for sure, what is sure is that there is like sev a, a large part of the, of, the, um, of the place in which people are, which are, if you want, like the beaches, the restaurant, the, um, the, the clubs, are places in which people rub shoulder with each other. I don't know if they always mingle, but they do rub shoulders with each other. I mean, I've, like, I've been in clubs in which you are basically a table uh, with a member, eminent member of the Rothschild family, and like two meters from there, you are the sons of Muammar Gaddafi, you know? And so things happen. They, they, they're basically spending, you know, six hours in the same place with each other. There is clearly some occasion of contact. So, of course, I, I took an extreme example, you know, willingly, because probably I'm not sure that in that case uh, that maybe... Strengthen the links between you know the Gaddafi and the Rothschild, which I guess you know uh, probably the Rothschild are a, a little uh, careful to stay away from um, uh, less uh, um, um, well people with a sort of bad reputation. But clearly, it creates occasion to um, of contact, and clearly uh, there is a s several of the people that we met or like story that you can read in you know, other context of people also clearly going to some bar because that know that it basically it give them access to um, um to a, to elite social capital and to uh, to a certain world and uh, and actually for example in another interview we can see that for example one of paradoxically if you're a newcomer and that you try to uh, get accepted in some of the most exclusive circles of the New York uh, upper class actually going to some bar can be something that help because actually it's more it's more easy actually to meet, to meet and and mingle and strengthen the link with uh, the Upper East Side uh, crowd that you're interested in, even if you live in New York, it might be more easy to do it by going to some Bart when they go to some Bart and to do it when you're in New York with them, if you don't already know them pre previously. Yes. So I would like to continue to the next article. So the Milan social clubs or the gentlemen's clubs. Uh, but I think the question that connects the two is if and to what extent these sort of elite forms of distinction, uh, so these forms of sociability, the social and cultural capital, if they are um, quantitative, just is it a matter of degree or are they really qualitatively different from uh, the processes that we see with the upper middle classes that, I mean, most sociologists study? Uh, so... Uh, maybe you can say something about this and also see how you can connect the, the St. Bart case with the um, Milan case. So is this, do we see the same processes? Are these cases of the same phenomenon? Or Maybe I, I, first I can say, I can say the, 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 uh, the, the St. Bart's piece kind of shows that, of course, there are mechanisms of cultural exclusion, but uh, there would be nothing if not for the strong mechanisms of economic exclusion and even logistical exclusion. As we say, there's no public transportation on the island. If you happened on the island by, uh, by chance, uh, you're not able to go up, uh, beyond the, the, the Gustavia because there's simply no transportation. So in a sense, we are a little, somewhat materialistic in our um, evaluation of the different obstacles to access here. Yeah, so you're right. So, so of course, I mean, the economic 
obstacles when it comes to this group. So the economic capital also is a very effective way of, of building barriers. But I think what is um, telling is that these economic barriers are are sort of supported or intensified quite considerably by the culture by the cultural and social capital mechanism that we're talking about, right? Absolutely. Yeah, and I think so then moving on to the Milan case, because there I think it's even more clearly so the logistical and maybe even the economic barriers are probably not the most important ones there. Yeah, they're not. You're right no, about that. So they're they're really they're really the forms of exclusion are based not in money, right? Because so I think just to start with the, the most striking sort of example is the example of the Benetton family being refused uh, membership, right? Uh, so that clearly suggests that you can be very rich and very successful, and that still doesn't help you in getting entrance to some elite circles, right? Yeah. So what's interesting is that, of course, in the case of um, uh, no, so it, the case of social clubs is that they have, if you want, like there are places that are seen as, in a way, I think we can use the term as safe space for uh, uh, the rich or those traditional family, place in which they feel they can be themselves, they don't have to be politically correct, they sort of like, you know, uh, don't have to um, abide to a certain like uh, egalitarian uh, rhetoric that they, for some of them, they don't really don't believe in it. And, uh, and, and they feel that they're a place in which they can be uneasy. So there is clearly, if you want, like an, 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 an emotional economic and an emotional dimension of belonging to the club. They want to be comfortable in the place. Then there is the fact, of course, that the club is, um, is useful also for them. They be, they, they're able to build, you know, very strong connection or inherit very strong connections. So it's also a place in which, you know, they can find business partners. They can like find opportunity because there is this sort of like, uh, because inside the, the, the club, of course, is very discriminating, but it's sort of like prize himself is being very qualitarian inside. Once you're a member, you're supposed to be the equal of any members. And therefore, as if you're a young 30-something that has just been co-opted, you're supposed to be the same and to be able to uh, go to speak to one of the biggest CEO in the country that is also a member of the club, which of course creates, you know, some form of access to people, to information, uh, and some form of social control, uh, because, you know, of course, it's, it, it would be extremely uh, frowned upon to sort of like hustle a club member or or to sort of like involve him in a business and then, you know, uh, uh, drop the ball, etc. And then finally, of course, there is also the fact that clubs are like sources of status. They basically give you, uh, b bring you sort of like um, a high status, and they and and and, and they are sort of like uh, for the newcomers in the club, uh, 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 supposed to be sort of one of the last tests that sort of like confirm your integration, your own integration, and then your integration of your family uh, in the, uh, the Milan elite, you know. And I think maybe it illustrates the, uh, the role of time in marking boundaries uh, between people at the very top and families at the very top. Uh, because time, you, you cannot really buy time. You cannot buy or invent past belonging, you know, centuries old belonging into uh, an aristocracy. You can uh, buy it for now, uh, but uh, the, uh, so learning, uh, socializing into a milieu in which there are things that cannot be bought, uh, I think is, is important uh, as a boundary making uh, signal and process. Yeah, so this is indeed uh, also something that we saw in the paper by Bourdieu that we read for an earlier episode on the forms of capital, where we also said, and it's interesting that there it is about cultural capital as something that comes with time and that reflects time, not only of your own learning, but the learning of your parents. And in effect, what you do is make a similar argument in a way about social capital, right? Absolutely. So, so yeah, the, exactly. the role exactly. of time and the building of the accumulation that, that spans generations. So yes. we really have yeah. here um, 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 classification struggles uh, in, in, a, in a Bourdieuian sense, uh, where uh, people not just uh, classify how people use their social capital, but also how they value their social capital uh, in a sense that, uh, 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 that Bourdieu says classifiers are classified for their classifications. So what kind of social capital uh, building you put on top 
classifies you uh, in this uh, space of symbolic struggles. And it, this is very well analyzed by Bourdieu for cultural capital. What we are doing is analyzing it for social capital itself, which Bourdieu hadn't done. Yes, and, and, and indeed, and, and, so if I may, just for the students to interrupt to explain, because I think one of the things that you show, I think for Bourdieu, he says that what, you know, cultural capital is so more effective when it looks effortless. So when it's not contrived, when it looks as if it happens naturally. And I think this is also happen, occurs in several of the places in the article, where also social capital works best when it's sort of easy, authentic, automatic, when you can be among friends. And I think that's also why they, they mock, in a way, the sort of middle class forms of capital that are, you know, that are serious and work-like. And they have, so I think it's also, I think it's the same, um, same opposition between the things that are natural and automatic and completely embodied and the things that are, you know, contrived and therefore more superficial or not automatic. And I think I really appreciated this sort of also Bourdieuian uh, intervention in, the, in social capital. It's another thing that I would like to, to specify is that uh, um, it's also important to underline the fact that uh, uh, because it's often like, I think, a, a misconception between uh, the public in general and even amongst colleagues. It's not like that you have on one side... Um, nouveau riche people that spray each other with champagne bottle in some bar nightclubs and on the other side the old money that uh, um, uh, acts in a very distinguished you know and maybe a little stuffy way in uh, social clubs there is a large overlapping with these people of course you have issues of like a, of age generations of uh, and some of them may belong only to one of the space and not the other one but many of them actually belong to both and uh, and actually I, I could actually have a list I, I I do have a list of families that are members uh, of the social clubs and in the same time that you can see them or their kids in some part or in the kind of nightclubs that uh, uh, Ashley in the nightclub that Ashley studies uh, spending like uh, uh, tens of thousands of dollars a night uh, for the bottle service. So it, it, it's really and those are different aspects, you know, of the social life, largely of the same. Uh, um, of the same group. I want to move to Isley's article now because I think what came up uh, during Bruno's discussion just now was actually the capacity of, of people to exploit other people's capital. And I think this is this, what is at the heart of Isley's argument that um, people have different forms of capital, but very often this capital is not yours only to use. And one of the things that distinguishes this specific circuit of elite uh, nightlife is actually the capacity of these very rich, mostly men, to exploit both the capital of the woman that they describe as girls and the social capital, actually, of the the, the the organizers, so the party organizers. So these are people that actually that use their their status to exploit other people's capital. Um so yeah. Sebastian? Yeah. You yeah, I think I think this article is a, a significant intervention into uh, Bourdieu's in capital theory. Uh Bourdieu um really made inroads by um developing a relational notion of capital, meaning uh, a capital is not any resource. It's a resource in as much it is being valued through a space. You can call it a field or any space of valuation, in fact, uh, that makes it function as capital. So it's a, it's a first relational move that was important. But by doing this uh, and, 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 that, and by pluralizing capitals, which was also an important move by Bourdieu, Bourdieu somewhat lost sight of another very important re way of, re of relationalizing capital, uh, which is to imagine, to not imagine that because you hold resources, you are the ones con controlling those resources and you are the ones benefiting from this re those resources. And I think Ashley's piece, uh, um, uh, through an gender analysis, really shows that you can have uh, value on you, in you, and have this capital, but in a sense not own it, or at least not benefit from it, because uh, because the benefit who who uh, gets the benefit from it is determined not by by, by what you own, but by um, 
a, 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 a space of social relations uh, marked by power and appropriation. Yes, yeah, so just to quickly summarize this article for those of the listeners who haven't uh, read it or not as well. So Ashley Mears is a sociologist who originally worked as a model and she wrote a book about her own experiences modeling. And after that, she entered the global party circuit and the global party circuit. These are uh, very exclusive nightclubs uh, with people who are well, very rich people, so-called bottle clubs. And uh, people go there uh, and they are accompanied by models or girl who look, girls who look like models. Uh, and these um, women, girls, are sort of assembled by a specific group of organizers. So they have a large social network of women that they bring to clubs and then they go into clubs and they provide these women to sort of accompany rich men to these clubs where they will um, drink lots of champagnes from very, very large bottles. Uh, and Ashley actually used her earlier experience as a model uh, to enter these clubs and she spent a lot of time in these clubs trying to understand this um, as a very specific uh, elite a global elite setting, also including uh, St. Bart as one of the places where uh, these people go to. And she used it also for a book that is also on the list, uh, Very Important People, uh, that is, I guess I highly recommend it because it's both a very clever sociological analysis and a very well-written book, uh, which is a very unusual combination. And this is actually one of the earliest um, um, articles about this research where she developed this notion of basically of, of the extraction of other people's capital as one of the foundations of, of status, of economic status, and one of the things that economic status affords you. Um, so yeah, because I think, I think, I think that it's, I think important is the fact, if you want to really to understand into detail what happened at the top of uh, um, the social ladder, the economic social ladder, I mean, the economic ladder, we really need to seriously study them qualitatively because we cannot simply assume, you know, the representation, the mini-making process, the behavior, the practice of people simply by, you know, like superficially reading about it in uh, the New York Times or uh, superficially uh, just browsing through member lists. It's not possible. We need to be there. Well, you make a general claim about if you want to do ethnographic research, then if you want to understand the elites, then ethnographic research is gives gives us better knowledge. So why is what do we know now that is better, deeper? I'm gonna be more precise. One of the first things that we understand is basically the fact that a large part of uh, the um, the motivations of this group in terms of competition distinction, um, different strategy are not that much uh, strategy towards the other social class that actually uh, strategy within the upper class or within the elite. One of the things is that unlike what basically uh, some people that read Bourdieu a little too quick may think, uh, the upper class is not at all obsessed with uh, distinguishing itself uh, from the middle class. It often considered this kind of distinction as obvious and uh, there is no need to uh, sort of like uh, re-perform it, uh, uh, to perform it on a regular basis. What they're obsessed with is like strategy of distinction within actually the upper class. And uh, so you have basically these classification facts between fractions that have, are, of course, in some cases related with uh, the struggle, you know, for economic power or political power or cultural power in other, in other fields. So uh, what's, uh, what's interesting here is that this, uh, this basically, by, by, by studying this place, we understand that uh, a little better. And it, it, so, and it also helps us to, you know, to understand better the, and, and to modelize better, therefore, the, uh, the role of interest, of emotion, of habits, of institution in the, um, in, in, in the understanding of, uh, you know, like the links and the social ties uh, between this rarefied uh, uh, elite circle. Yeah, I want to... Um summarize because I think that's important. I think one of the things you're saying, Bruno, is that 
Um, sociologists can actually explain why things are coordinated without s suggesting that there is a coordinator, right? M maybe not why, but how, yes, how they are coordinated, well, yes, then, absolutely. Okay, then, but yeah, yeah, but if it's how, then also the why, right? If you explain, you yes, know, these people yeah. sort of, you know, it's the, it's the social networks and the forms of capital and the cultural patterns that allow people to sort of move in sync and to sort of create groupness and social structures and the sort of simplistic understanding is you know there is like a place where there are people with switchboards who are doing this and what sociology can show is that people are actually quite good at having coordinated social structures and durable forms without there being a coordinator is that what you're yes, saying correct. yeah yeah yes it's correct yes 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 Okay, so the, the, the dimension I wanted to uh, tackle in Isla's article is the gender dimension, because I think that's very important also because it also brings uh, gender into Bourdieuian analysis. So can you say something about that? Because I know you've discussed this with Ashley. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Actually, she was in Amsterdam when she was writing this article, so we talked about it a lot when she was writing it. Uh, I think uh, one of the ways she brings up gender into this um, uh, capital uh, dis discussion is um, she, in a sense, she is ethnographically reconstituting the infrastructure that produces this apparent free market where uh, you know men have money and women have beauty. Uh, or erotic capital. But really, here, it's an implicit critique of the concept of erotic capital, in a sense, which begs the question of why do we say, do we think that men have money and women have beauty? Uh, obviously, it's not an explanation. It should be what needs to be explained. Uh, and so she really, in a sense, doing, is doing a sort of uh, political economy of, ge uh, of gender, that is looking, that's not uh, sort of um, replicating these categories uh, of uh, uh, erotic capital versus uh, money and power and sort of free exchange, but it's actually, it's coming before that. It's looking at the institutional setting that is producing the illusions of those categories. You know, she's doing a sort of a critique of a political economy of gender and not just uh, re uh, repeating the categories of this essentialized political economy. So that I think it's a way to do re a sort of Marxian-inspired, but also Marxian-feminist-inspired, in many ways, analysis, uh, critical analysis of these exchanges. Um, but, it, but the other way that I think she looks at the, um, uh, at the gendered aspect is, uh, once she said that this um, capital uh, that is endowed on these women, in a sense, they embody hegemonic femininity. She look, she looks at how they are not benefiting from it, uh, and she looks at, in a sense, uh, how hegemonic um, uh, femininity is both powerful and powerless, um, and, um, and and uh, because what she shows is that where these women, young women called girls, um, uh, using their own intimacy for strategic purposes, their own bodily capital themselves for strategic purposes, then they're immediately uh, subject to the whore stigma. The whore stigma is gonna punish uh, the autonomous uh, and strategic use of their bodily capital. And so I think the term girl capital is very nice in a sense because it's very ambivalent and imprecise in many ways. Uh, the, the discussion has always been, you know, who owns the girl capital? Is who? What's the girl capital? Is it something that the earn uh, the 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 girl, so-called girl, uh, owns, or is it uh, something that promoter owns? And in fact, what she says is the the girl has bodily capital, and what the promoter does is transforming what this bodily capital into girl capital, which is something that the promoter has. And the difference is, of course, that bodily capital is. Uh, a depreciating asset. You know, those uh, young women don't last long at all on the scene. Uh, but girl capital is a completely renewable asset. You know, the promoters replace their girls. So uh, so, so do client, clients by, by extension. And so you see how, in a sense, an, a relationship of exploitation, which is economic exploitation and gendered exploitation at the same time, somewhat dispossesses bodily capital by, by valuing it uh, in ways uh, that transform it into girl capital, uh, which is the product, uh, the, the which is the, um, the 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 property of the owners of the means of 
girl capital production, production in yeah. many ways. In many ways. Very Marxist indeed. So what's I think what is striking is that at a more general level is first of all is that the very strong claim that is of course too that the fact that you have capital doesn't really mean that you are the one who can benefit from it. And I think that's a also so that's interestingly in the entire literature and all sorts of forms of capital, this is yeah, the, the assumption is indeed seems to be that if you have capital that you would be the person who can benefit from this, that it's your resource. And that's a very interesting sort of obviously false claim, right? So it's really, and, and I remember reading this for the first time, you're thinking, yes, indeed, how odd that all of us, you know, Bourdieu-inspired people think, have, been, have been thinking for, I know, 40 years, sure, if you have capital, you will be the one to use it. And then she shows actually doubly, so it's not the young women who can benefit from their bodily capital, but in the end, it's also the promoters whose social capital, again, is exploited by... So it's a, so it's a, very, um, it's a very large theoretical intervention that comes from a place, and I think this is also what I, what I would like about cultural sociology, is people go to places that, you know, that people think are sort of nothing of real importance can happen there. You know, nightclubs and rich men and champagne and these women. And actually, this is the place where you can go and find real, you know, huge insights that have a lot of implications for many other. Yeah, and I, I think it's not uh, by coincidence that uh, it's, it comes up in, a, in a, an article about gender because the place, the intellectual place where a lot of, where these relationships of exploitation have been more, uh, more thought out is the history of feminism and feminist theorizing. Whether Marxist feminist feminism or uh, materialistic, various strands of materialist feminism have looked at uh, gender as a relationship of appropriation and exploitation of resource of of uh, female labor and female resources. So, um, in many ways, I don't think it's actually a coincidence. I think, uh, to be fair, there's been uh, this gen genesis and uh, um, uh, this encounter between some um, uh, feminist theoretical insights and Bourdieuian theory over the question of capital and appropriation. Uh, is uh, at the same time very feminist and very Bourdieuian. It's just, in a sense, going further than uh, and, and pointing to blind spots in Bourdieu's capital theory. Yes. So I have, because we've been talking for quite some time, and I have lots of questions, but I have three questions that I really, really want to answer you before we go to the end. So one is the question, what are the classes we are looking at? And I, I'm asking this specifically because I was interested that you tend to talk about these rich people that you have been studying as bourgeoisie, which I think has in a sort of in a specific a Marxist understanding, isn't it? But I think mostly, I think people would tend to think of the bourgeoisie as a much larger group of people, which includes various sections of the middle class. Uh, so why do you use bourgeoisie and what sort of class structure do you actually see? So is this a new class structure? Is this, so what is the class model that, that you, that we see emerging here? Well, do, do, um, if I, can, can I try, Seb? Can, can no, please go ahead. Globally, I think probably the class structure that implicitly we have in mind, it's like a class structure in which, that is in a way very bourgeoisian, in which within the bourgeoisie you have different fractions, of, between the bourgeoisie of the upper class, you have different fractions, some of them that are basically like more... Uh, with uh, more cultural capital and some of them that are basically like more uh, with more like uh, um, uh, more economic capital a, a bigger weight in in economic capital and uh, I guess that yeah we will consider that uh, um, even if we don't really speak about academics that like that basically academics uh, established academics do belong to you know the upper middle class or the upper class and therefore in a way do belong to the bourgeoisie they may be the first generation in the bourgeoisie but they are bourgeois you know so in, in a way it's, it's, it's a marxian uh, a marxian or marxist way to to use it now for the categories like more like super rich um so here is the idea that uh, uh, super rich will be um um irregularly uh, of uh, uh, regardless of if they are old money or uh, new money, they are basically people that belong with you know really to the zero one or zero zero one percent. 
of you know like in 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 terms of wealth uh, and often income too uh, and therefore yes by super rich you know the Rockefeller are super rich and like Zuckerberg is, is a is a super rich and of course also people with less money uh, so n- now where do we put like the limit uh, uh, between uh, um, rich and super rich uh, actually. Actually, not in any specific place. And actually, what we basically started to do uh, with, with Sebastian in our work and even more uh, systematically in our recent work, uh, we, we've actually started when people are anonymized to actually specifically tell uh, what's the magnitude of their wealth. So we're basically speaking about uh, millionaire, decamillionaire, centimillionaire, billionaire, decabillionaire. I think it's a way when you, you're at, the, when you're basically describing sort of like this kind of people, I think it's, uh, it's useful to be able to place them in terms of wealth. Because uh, th- actually the organization of the household, the organization of the entourage of like a uh, uh, decabillionaire is not the same one than the organization of the entourage of uh, a decamillionaire. I don't know if that answers partially your question. No, I think so. Probably it it leads up to another question I wanted to ask you, which is where do we go from here? So having discussed these new issues, so what sort of new fields of research are emerging? So one, I mean, I, that will lead us to two more hours of uh, discussion. Of course, we have like many, <laughs> many ideas. And like, but I think so. One, so I think one of the things that uh, it, it, we really need to do, uh, because of the development of like the, um, uh, well, let's call them the super rich by now, it's that I think we really need to have serious studies that studies like the households of the super rich as uh, actually as organizations. See, if, if you're basically an, an, an historian of uh, the uh, Renaissance or of like the 18th century, it's absolutely obvious that if you want to do a, a sociological history or historical sociology of the, of the Medici or of a minor family like the Pazzi in Florence, you need to study the house of Medici and the, or the house of Pazzi, which means that you're going to study the family member and also all the people at their personal service that basically like in some cases, live in their households and work for them and are, par- are actually part of their strategy. And now, like you have more and more, especially in places like, uh, you know, uh, New York, in the United States, of course, where you have a, a great and a, a big concentration of super rich, but in many other places, you do have actually families that have, uh, you know, uh, as I was saying before, uh, art curator, nanny for the kids, of course, maid that clean the apartment, personal cook, driver. So people that do this kind of task, if you want, that are more care task or in charge of uh, managing the house, but also actually you have basically private tutor for the kids. You have like private coach for, for sport for the kids. And as you know, in the United States, actually sport can really help you to go into college. Uh, you have like our personal art curator, et cetera, et cetera. So actually some of this family, you, if you have multiple residences, there is like a, a estate manager that manages the residence. So they're like a business, actually. Yeah, Or like exactly. a corporation so, uh, or, yeah. Yes, the, the family, and of course, for the richest of them, you of course have, you know, wealth advisor, family office, etc., etc. So I think we really need to sort of like, not only sort of like maybe study the sector of family office or, you know, like what Brooke Harrington did, which basically studied the professional finance advisor for a super wealthy family. But I think we also need to sort of like try to to study yet yeah, households themselves or house, I don't know how to call them, as organizations. Because so the emergence of what you actually describe is not only new social forms, but also new sort of cultural styles and secluded worlds. I think all of these at the same time, right? So it's a new form of organization that we... Yes, yeah. so, or, or, or at least if you, you, you have... Clearly, there is like uh, there is a, a development of strategies of like uh, uh, of uh, segregation of reproduction, and of course, the, the time that we're living in is sort of like interesting because uh, since there is an increasing in inequalities, 
uh, and uh, because like the economic uh, the dotation in economic capital are, are changing and there is dynamics of globalization we're in a situation in which uh, the mechanism of institution of reproduction themselves have to evolve because actually the 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 in part you know the, the class structure and the socioeconomic ladder is evolving so we're not in a situation of stability you know in which in which like uh, uh, the elite are reproducing uh, uh, themselves almost in an identical way generation after generation there is some more general global and structural change that you know, uh, lead them to some adjustments. Okay, so Seb, yeah. Yeah, but perhaps one of the one of the uh, challenges today regarding perhaps the question of the uh, globalization uh, of uh, elites um, would be to just go beyond this uh, uh, idea of an opposition between globalized elites on the other and um, and then sort of national national uh, based uh, uh, elites on on uh, on the other hand. I think. In many ways, the globalization of elites uh, is an empirical issue, uh, but it's also uh, a program that looks at the various elites that are globalizing. And globalization of elites means globalization of struggles between various, various forms of elites at the global level. And so I think looking at the globalization of elites uh, in terms of the globalization of a field of power that is differentiated, full of, full of struggles, that goes beyond uh, the national versus global, uh, I think is one of the challenges today uh, about this topic. Yeah, and if, if I can add just a very last thing about that, in fact, because, of course, for example, in France, we're also very close to uh, Jules Naudet, which is a colleague that works on uh, Indian economic elite. And it, it, we have very, we, we have extremely interesting discussion with him because, of course, the things that, the, 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 the elite and the field that we study, being in Europe and in the United States, or, you know, in Caribbean island, patronized mainly by those two kind of elite, we're already sort of like studying what is the historical, if you want, the historical core of the uh, integrated global elite, you know, Americans and European, basically. Jules, on the other wise, has done some fascinating work uh, on basically the Indian elites and the way in which a country that, you know, was in like in a d dominated post-colonial position as is now, as now elite that are basically raising economically and sort of like developing strategy to sort of like becoming more and more central and, and to enter, you know, some of the inner circle of, uh, of sociability. And actually in his work, there is also uh, he also has done ethnography of the party circuit in Delhi and in the way in which, you know, uh, India Delhi develop also their own strategies. So, of, of, of course, it's, it's kind of difficult. I mean, this dynamic of globalization also are different if you are focusing on, like, groups that were already, already fairly integrated, you know, like... Uh, 100 years ago, in which there were already a lot of marriage between the American bourgeoisie and the and the French one and the British one, even more, etc. Or if you're looking at uh, uh, national fraction, national groups that are starting that that are integrating, uh, of which integration is is more recent. Okay, so um, plenty of things to do. Okay, so we are nearing the end. Uh, so this was. Uh, a Culture and Inequality podcast with a very interesting conversation with Bruno Cousin and Sébastien Chauvin about elite uh, cultures and many other things, I must say. Um, so we have a final question that we always ask at the end of this. So I'm asking this first of you, Sébastien, because you're now the person I'm looking at on my screen, which is, what can you let go this week? So after this conversation, what is the thing that will remain with you as a key point that you will keep thinking about? I, I think the, the various articles that we read for today really all in their ways insist on the relationality of capital. That is, it's a various ways of desubstantializing capital as a resource. Uh, the, who owns it? Where, how does it get its power from? Who can profit from it? What is the space that makes it valuable, etc.? So it's very much in the direction. It's a, you know, it's a Bourdieuian program, but it, we showed very different ways and very complementary ways of doing it. And I think these ways should be combined in a, in good work. Yeah, but nothing is valuable in itself, right? That's relationality. Value always emerges in a specific context where it's made valuable in relations. So Bruno, for you, what can you let go this week? Conversation, the article of Ashley, I was sort of like thinking of the time, what what the quote unquote, quote unquote girls could do to sort of like if they decided to organize to uh, try to, you know, like actually 
impeach the expropriation of their girl capital, you know, which is sort of like a, a, an issue that is similar of, you know, uh, the issue during like the, um, the, at the end of the 90s in Italy, in Milan, uh, the, there was the emergence of this very powerful union called the Feder Modelli, which at some point, uh, the, like, uh, the unions realized that, like, the models were totally exploited. They were like, the models needs to be organized. So there was sort of like this movement of unionization of the models that was supposed to sort of like fight the, their exploitation by agency that were sort of like harvesting a large part of their revenue. So I, I, I was like, yeah, I was in a way thinking like, uh, is there a way... How there could be like, you know, like a, a way for like the girls to maybe organize themselves in trying to, you know, get a much, you know, yeah, get basically the plus value that is being, keep the plus value that is gain, being uh, stolen from them. What I can't let go this week is related to this. So it is about the issue of legitimacy. So what's really interesting about all sorts of elite cultures or cultural form of status that we see is that it's also that it's accepted. Uh, so it's not only the social connectedness that is accepted, but also that many people tend to accept sort of the symbols that go with these sort of elite forms and that they are accepted quite unquestioningly. Uh, so even my sort of sense of, you know, slight gossipy, excitement at hearing about these bottle clubs and about these places like St. Bart, it also sort of uncomfortably reminds me that there is something something tempting or something that you fall for these forms of elite culture also. So there is, so it is legitimized because it seems exclusive and I'm also sort of drawn into this magic of this exclusivity, even as a sociologist. So I want to thank you very much for this very interesting conversation. Thank you. So it was very enjoyable and I learned a lot. So thank you so much also to the listeners for joining us for this podcast on culture and inequality. And I hope to welcome you again to the next podcast, which will be about food and health inequalities. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you, Giselinde. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I saw the cat. I saw the cat <laughs> yes. scratching because yes. the glass window. It's a glass door. Yeah, and no, I saw, no, exactly. I so like, he's trying. So he's hanging from the door handle. <laughs> okay. So he's trying to enter, but he couldn't. Um, you know the you know the famous story, right? About like uh, the horse, the dog, and the cat that arrive in heaven, and they ask to be at uh, in heaven no. with uh, with men. With yeah. men and like it's a, it's the, the, the like the 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 horse arrived first and like he said I would like to be in heaven with humans and God said why and the, and the, and like uh, and uh, and uh, what did you do what do you have like uh, to say and like I'm basically and 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 the horse say well uh, I I'm I'm very I I work a lot for all the history of humanity I've like done all the hard work for humans I'm a hard worker I was did, did, there for them etc etc I think I, I deserve a spot. And like the gods say, okay, you stay here. The dogs arrive and they say, I'm very faithful. I'm the best friend, like uh, of uh, of like uh, of men, uh, and uh, I'm super loyal. I've been with them since the beginning. I think I deserve a spot. And uh, the the gods say, okay, you can say. The cats arrive. He looks he looks at God and God say, what do you have to say for you, cat? And the cats look at God and say, I think you're sitting on my spot. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed.